0: Welcome, you are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today we're gonna start off with a recipe from SpittenKitchen.com. We're just gonna go straight for dessert first because life is short. Rhubarb upside down spice cake. I realize that spring is supposed to be all flowers and pastels, lightness and lemon zest, but all of these cool rainy days in the last month make me crave winter spices, no matter how many tomatoes and herbs I've planted this week, in hopes, despite all historical evidence, that this is the year I excel at container gardening. So, when a teacher at my son's school brought me a bag of the most gorgeous, deeply red rhubarb, I really am this lucky, I knew immediately that this cake would have buttery, lightly caramelized, stripy rhubarb topping draped over it. And if you're ever asking yourself if it's been too long since you had an upside down cake, the answer is always yes. I have leaned over the last couple of years that there are people, smart, interesting people that I love very much, who do not care for rhubarb. They are not charmed by its perfect coloration ranging from shimmery garnet through millennial pink and straight through to mossy green. It's tart flavor that sings against vanilla and lemon and anchors the sometimes cotton candiness of strawberries so you can better taste them or by the fact that unlike anything else in my real life hair, clothes, or apartment, it's incapable of looking bad. They do not see rhubarb as a sign that we're near done with last winter's vegetables and that berry season is nigh. They find it jammy or stringy or too wet or depressingly gray once it's cooked. I'm not here to change their mind any more than anyone else has succeeded in convincing me over my lifetime that beets are delicious. I'm here for their cake. I'm glad there's more for the rest of us. Here's the recipe rhubarb upside down spice cake. This serves eight to 12 and takes about one hour. If you don't have an ovenproof skillet, a deep, ideally three inch side, nine inch cake pan or a regular depth 10 inch cake pan should work as well. Coat the sides with butter or a nonstick spray and then cook the topping in a frying pan and pour it into the prepared cake pan before adding the batter. Baking times will vary a bit. The 9-inch is likely to take longer, a 10-inch possibly shorter. For the topping, you need 1 pound of rhubarb trimmed, 3 quarters cups of granulated sugar, finely grated zest from half a lemon, 4 tablespoons of unsalted butter, cold is fine, 2 pinches of salt. For the cake, you'll need 6 tablespoons of unsalted butter softened, two-thirds cup of light or dark brown sugar, one-quarter cup of granulated sugar, two large eggs, one-half teaspoon of vanilla extract, two teaspoons of baking powder, one-quarter teaspoon of fine sea salt, one teaspoon of ground cinnamon, one-half teaspoon of ground ginger, one-eighth teaspoon of ground cloves, and a few gratings of fresh nutmeg. You also need one-half cup of buttermilk, and one and a half cups of all purpose flour. First, you're going to heat your oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit and then make the topping. In a 10 inch oven proof skillet, trim your rhubarb to lengths that will fit across the bottom in one direction, i.e., some short and some taller. Remove rhubarb and cut each stalk lengthwise into thin, about a quarter inch thick ribbons. If your rhubarb is already quite thin, you might just want to have each piece lengthwise. Sprinkle sugar into the skillet and add lemon zest. Use your fingers to mix the zest onto the sugar, and then the grit of the sugar will help release the most flavor from it. You're going to add butter and salt and heat the skillet over medium until butter has melted, stirring frequently. Add the rhubarb and cook turning gently for three to four minutes until it has softened slightly and released some of its liquid. Remove from the heat and set the skillet aside. Then you're going to make the cake. In a large bowl, beat butter and sugars until light and fluffy. Add eggs, one at a time, beating until combined, and then vanilla. Sprinkle the mixture with baking powder, salt, and all the spices, and beat well to thoroughly mix them in. Add the buttermilk. The mixture will have a curdly texture but don't worry it's all going to even out. Scrape down the bowl and add flour and beat only until it disappears. Check your rhubarb base to make sure that all the pieces are in the order that you'd like them to be and nudge around any that are not. And then dollop cake batter over the rhubarb mixture in small spoonfuls and smooth the top as best as you can. As the rhubarb mixture will be very wet, this will seem almost impossible. I actually gave up and just put it in the oven where the cake spread into one layer on its own. Thank you, cake. (laughs) Next, you want to bake the cake for about 35 minutes until the toothpick inserted deep into the cake but not the topping underneath comes out batter free. Transfer to a cooling rack and let cool for five minutes and then run a knife around the edges to loosen. Place a larger plate upside down over the skillet and use two pot holder hands to flip the cake out onto it. If any rhubarb is stuck in the pan or slides down the side, just return it to the top of the cake. Serve warm or at room temperature. The cake keeps for a couple of days at room temperature and up to a week in the fridge. Well, or, or so I hear. Ours has never made it last that long. Next we're gonna balance out our uh, wonderful dessert with a baby wedge salad with avocado and pickled onions. Merely three weeks ago, I lamented the mediocrity and afterthoughtedness of most meatless entrees, so often cobbled together from sides of other dishes. Because I love a plot twist, it seems only right that this week I tell you about my favorite salad, which happens to be, you guessed it, cobbled from the sides of other dishes. I used to order it from a taco place in our neighborhood before they changed the recipe, and even though I knew it was just the most fillery lettuce, the pickled onions, sliced radishes, pepitas, and crumbled cotija they'd use to garnish their other offerings, masquerading as a salad, I did not care. Sometimes it works, and here it sings. It's absolutely perfect, crunchy, bright, creamy and inhalable. At home, I definitely zhuzh it up a little bit. I I learned to my delight how to spell zhuzh. Uh, I like to warm the papitas in oil until they get more crisp and fragrant. I add avocado, which I also did at home when we'd order it. And sometimes I get cute and cut the iceberg lettuce into little wedges. I measure the toppings with my heart, but there are measurements below that will also work. I don't know about you, but I could and I might try to eat this once a week forever. So here's the recipe. This is called, again, baby wedge salad with avocado and pickled onions. Uh, Servings, this is not for me to decide. (laughs) No judgment. Time, 30 minutes, source, Smitten Kitchen. You're going to need 3 tablespoons of red wine vinegar, 1 tablespoon of water, kosher salt, one quarter teaspoon of granulated sugar or honey, one half of a small red onion thinly sliced, one quarter cup of pepitas, three tablespoons of olive oil, freshly ground black pepper, one small head of iceberg lettuce, one medium avocado chopped into chunks, and one half cup of crumbled cotija cheese, two radishes thinly sliced and then cut into matchsticks. First you need to pickle your onions. You're going to combine red wine vinegar, water, one half teaspoon of kosher salt and sugar or honey in a jar. Add the onion and shake to combine. You can let this pickle and soften in the fridge for one hour and up to five days but it's not bad at all in 10 to 15 minutes. To hurry the pickling along you can actually microwave this uh, with the lid off for about 20 seconds and then let it hang out in the fridge until you're ready. Next, you're going to crisp your papitas. Combine the papitas with three, three tablespoons of olive oil in a small skillet and warm over medium heat. Let the papitas sizzle in the oil for one to two minutes, but keep a close eye on them. Raw ones may be able to handle more time, but already toasted ones will need less to get one shade darker. Remove from the heat, season with salt and pepper, and let cool for a few minutes before using. Next, you're going to assemble the salad. Cut your iceberg into halves and then each half into four wedges. Cut the wedges down into smaller triangles, keeping the little pyramids intact as best you can for the baby wedge appearance. Transfer them to your serving plate. Scatter the iceberg with avocado and then spoon pepitas and their oil over everything. Scatter with rings of pickled onion and spoon the vinegar brine left over over the lettuce. Garnish with the cotija cheese and radishes and season the whole platter with salt and pepper and eat right away. That definitely balances out the rhubarb dessert from earlier. That sounds really really good. Our next recipe is for carrot soup with miso and sesame. I hadn't meant for this soup to be so quintessentially early January that would be virtually fat-free, dairy-free, gluten-free, miso-dependent, vegan, and the very picture of healthful do-gooding. It's about one cube of tofu away from earning a halo, or at least being surrounded by seeing cherubs. In fact, if you advertise a soup to me with all of those qualities, I'd probably run in the other direction because I'm a dietary heathen and I love butter even if overdoing it in December now requires it in moderation. But for the rest of the time, I love it. In fact, the reason why I made this soup is because in general, I don't find carrot soups all that interesting, and I wanted to challenge myself to make one that I'd love and eat often. I'd turn to one of my favorite dressing recipes for inspiration, the ginger-carrot-miso awesomeness most of us know from sushi restaurants, and decided to mash up a miso and carrot soup. Usually when you finish a soup like this, and by like this, I mean a relatively simple saute of onion and garlic, a simmering of vegetables and broth, followed by a run in the blender, cream or creme fraiche or sour cream goes in, and you could do that here, but I didn't want to bury the brightness of the miso paste, so I instead drizzled some toasted sesame oil on it which is frankly like crack to me and scattered some thinly sliced scallions. The soup is good without them but with them it all comes together harmoniously dancing off into a 4:40 p.m. 27 degrees sunset. Goodness that sounded depressing but I promise it's a lot less so with this soup on the stove. Here's the recipe carrot soup with miso and sesame. Usually, recipe writers urge you to season food throughout, building layers of flavor. Here, don't. The miso we add at the end is very salty, and it's safest to decide how much seasoning your soup needs after that. Note, the soup is gluten-free with a large caveat, and that is that most miso is in part from barley and is not gluten-free. You will need to seek out a miso brand, such as this one from Eden, that is clearly marked so much for it to be uh, good to go. If you're new to miso there's a link to a fantastic primer on miso at smittenkitchen.com. For the soup you'll need two tablespoons of olive oil, two pounds of carrots peeled and thinly sliced, one large onion finely chopped, four regular or six small garlic cloves peeled and smashed, One tablespoon of finely chopped or grated ginger, or more to taste. It could easily be doubled. Four cups of vegetable broth. One quarter cup of white miso paste, or more to taste. And to finish, you're going to drizzle, you want a drizzle of toasted sesame oil and two scallions sliced very thin. You're going to heat the oil in a heavy, large saucepan over medium heat. Add carrots, onion, and garlic, and saute until the onion is translucent. That'll be about 10 minutes. Add the broth and ginger. Cover and simmer until carrots are tender when pierced, stirring occasionally about 30 minutes. Puree the soup in batches in blender or all at once with an immersion blender. In a small bowl, whisk together the miso and a half cup of the soup. Stir the mixture back into the pot of soup Taste the soup and season it with salt, pepper, or additional miso as needed to taste. Ladle into bowls and garnish each with a drizzle of sesame oil and a small mound of scallions. As far as pickled scallions, I didn't do this in the end, but was tempted to lightly pickle the scallions by letting them hang out in a mixture of six tablespoons of rice vinegar, two tablespoons of water, one tablespoon of kosher salt, I use diamond brand so use less if you're using Morton or another which are more dense and one and a half teaspoons of sugar for a while before using them as a garnish again this is completely up to you I didn't do it for this particular recipe so the next recipe we have is for green goddess ricotta pasta and it's perfect spring dinner this is from eatingwell.com Pick the flavors of green goddess dressing, lemon, anchovy, and herbs, and use them as the base for a colorful, bright pasta sauce. We like a mix of basil, chives, parsley, and tarragon, but you can mix herbs depending on what you have on hand. Adding ricotta to the sauce creates a luscious, velvety texture, while the acidity from the lemon juice balances out the creaminess. We use shells which holds the pools of sauce well, but you could easily swap in another noodle if you prefer. To amp up the veggies even more, try adding asparagus or peas to the dish. This active time to make this recipe is 20 minutes, the total time is also 20 minutes, and it serves four. The ingredients, you'll need 8 ounces of whole wheat pasta shells, 2 tablespoons of olive oil, three tablespoons of chopped shallot, one teaspoon of minced garlic, three-quarter teaspoon of anchovy paste, two cups of packed baby spinach, one cup of chopped mixed fresh tender herbs such as basil, chives, parsley, and or tarragon plus more for garnish, two-thirds cup of part skim ricotta cheese, one-half teaspoon of grated lemon zest, Two tablespoons of fresh lemon juice, one quarter teaspoon of salt, three quarter cup of finely grated Parmesan cheese, divided. First, you're going to bring a large pot of water to boil, and then add the pasta and cook according to the package directions. You're going to reserve one cup of the cooking water, and then drain the pasta and set aside. Next, while well, you're going to heat oil in a large skillet over medium heat. Add shallot and garlic and cook stirring often until translucent about two minutes. Add anchovy paste cook stirring constantly until fragrant about 30 seconds. Add spinach cook stirring constantly until bright green and wilted about one minute. Next you're going to transfer the spinach mixture to a blender. Add your herbs, ricotta, lemon zest, lemon juice and salt and blend on medium-high until smooth and bright green about one minute. Add 1 quarter cup of the reserved pasta water if necessary to thin the sauce. Transfer the sauce to a large skillet over medium heat and add the pasta and 1 half cup of Parmesan. Toss to coat until warmed through about one minute, adding pasta water one tablespoon at a time until desired consistency is reached. Next, you're going to divide the pasta among four bowls, sprinkle with the remaining 1 quarter cup of Parmesan, and garnish with additional herbs if desired. As far as making a head, you can refrigerate the sauce, that's steps two and three, in an airtight container for up to three days. To serve, proceed with step four add the cooked pasta once the sauce is hot our next recipe is for roasted salmon tacos they are perfect these 30-minute roasted salmon tacos are perfect for busy weeknights this one also from eatingwell.com a honey and chipotle glaze gives this roasted salmon a sweet and spicy kick if you have time consider grilling or broiling the corn for a few minutes for additional flavor If you're short on time, thawed frozen corn can be used in place of fresh. This takes 30 minutes, serves four. Here's how we made this recipe diabetes friendly. We roast the fish instead of frying it. Many fish taco recipes call for deep-fried breading fish and lots of oil. We roast our salmon in the oven instead and skip the breading in favor of a quick glaze using chipotle peppers, honey and Dijon mustard to kick things up a bit in the flavor department. Roasting the salmon and skipping the breading helps keep saturated fat and calories in check. Consuming too much saturated fat has been shown to contribute to elevated LDL cholesterol levels and may lead to heart disease and stroke. Next we used nutrient-dense salmon as the star. Salmon is loaded with antioxidants and healthy fats that help with preventing disease and managing blood sugar. It's advised to consume at least two servings of fatty fish like salmon each week. According to the American Heart Association, consuming fatty fish helps to prevent cardiovascular disease and lowers your risk for stroke. We recommend choosing your salmon following the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Guide to ensure that your salmon is a sustainable option. Next we pair the salmon with a veggie heavy salsa to help reach daily nutritional goals. Did you know that it's advised that you consume at least five servings total of fruits and vegetables each day? Five servings. That can seem overwhelming, especially if you struggle to find ways to enjoy them, but luckily the salsa in this recipe is a flavorful, fun way to help meet that quota. Feel free to add some shredded cabbage in to boost your veggie intake even more. Tips from the Eating Well Test Kitchen. If you can't find center cut salmon, uh, can I use another cut? Absolutely. If you have a tapered tail end portion, consider tucking the thin end in under itself so that it ends up about the same thickness as the rest of the fillet or consider decreasing the cooking time a bit so that a thinner piece won't overcook. Here's the recipe. Uh, One and a quarter pounds of center cut salmon fillet, two teaspoons of honey, one can of chipotle pepper and adobo finely chopped, one teaspoon of Dijon mustard, one teaspoon of fresh lime juice plus two tablespoons divided. One quarter teaspoon of kosher salt divided. One and a half cups of fresh corn kernels from three ears. One red bell pepper finely chopped. Two scallions thinly sliced on the bias. One small jalapeno pepper seeded and finely diced. One quarter cup of chopped fresh cilantro. Eight corn tortillas warmed and one avocado sliced and one lime quartered. First you're going to preheat the oven to 425 degrees Fahrenheit. Line a large rimmed baking sheet with foil and coat lightly with a cooking spray. Next you're going to combine the honey, chipotle, mustard and one teaspoon of lime juice in a small bowl. Place the salmon skin side down on the prepared baking sheet sprinkle with one quarter teaspoon of salt and roast for 14 minutes remove from the oven spread the honey chipotle glaze over the fish and continue roasting until cooked through about two to four minutes more meanwhile combine the corn bell pepper scallions jalapeno cilantro and the remaining two tablespoons of lime juice and a quarter teaspoon salt in a medium bowl Toss to combine Next, you're going to remove and discard the salmon skin, flake the salmon, serve in warmed tortillas topped with avocado and the corn and pepper salsa, and serve with lime wedges. As far as making ahead, you can cover and refrigerate the chipotle glaze and salsa separately for up to one day. A couple more notes on the roasted salmon recipe, Um, what do I do with all those leftover canned chipotles? Definitely do not throw them away. Chipotles freeze beautifully. Place them in a small resealable freezer bag and remove the air from the bag and seal. Or you can portion leftover chipotles in adobo in an ice cube tray and freeze them. Once they're frozen, transfer the cubes to uh, to a resealable freezer bag or container. And the next time you need them, they'll be ready for you. Some people ask if they can use another piece of fish instead of the salmon. Many varieties of fish would work well with this recipe. If you use a thicker cut fillet of swordfish or other meaty fish, you'll likely need to increase the cooking time. If you choose a lean white fish such as tilapia or cod, you may need to decrease the cooking time a little bit. You can tell when the fish is done if it's no longer opaque in the middle and it flakes easily with a fork. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller.